Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode five in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 3rd of February. And Leon, this week we're talking to AJ Bartier. He's the uh, Chief Product Officer and CIO at carsales.com. He talks to us about the company expanding into Latin America. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, he's looking for he's looking for new markets and Latin America's offering them. So it's going to be interesting seeing that company's strategy. And carsales.com is doing really well and it's doing really well in the share market. And after that, we took to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Yeah, Sinclair, pretty interesting on what's going to happen in Canberra. Which is what's happening with the federal budget in 10 weeks' time. So let's listen to AJ Bartier. AJ Bacio, tell us about car sales expansion into Latin America, Mexico and uh, Brazil and Chile. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so in Latin America, we own, we own assets in three countries, um, Mexico, Chile and Brazil. In Mexico and Chile, we are majority owners of the businesses in, in those that part of LATAM. Um, and in um, Brazil, we are a minority owner. So why Latin America? Um, Latin America is, um, is a growing market so um, car sales has um, ha- has a philosophy around international expansion of going into um, large significant emerging markets and Latin America just fits the bill and the the used car market would be quite large there wouldn't it um, in Brazil in particular used car market is uh, the fourth largest in the world very very large market Mexico is another country that's very very large it's the second largest Latin American market uh, Chile is is a smaller country but it is more closer to a first world country as part of LATAM. So there are some different economics that are favorable in Chile. Uh, it's not really size, but but it's still a really good economy. Um, it's a, the, the population is a little bit smaller than Australia, but not too much smaller. So the opportunity that we've created in Australia gives us the confidence that we can still um, make Chile a big, big success. Tell us about the technology you're using for these markets. Yeah, so my, my role in this company is, is specific to that that part part of uh, implementing our global platform, um, and it's it's been a really exciting journey for car sales. We've um, more recently had the opportunity to expand our platform into a, a multi-language, um, multi-country platform. And more recently, a couple of months ago, we launched our retail website into Mexico. Soloautos.mx is the site. If you if you if you had some time, you can go and have a look. If you can brush up on your Spanish as well, because it does work in Spanish. the The technology is the same technology stack as used in Australia, and we're really proud that while majority of the companies are outsourcing sort of eastwards um, or into Southeast Asia or or one of those countries, we are actually doing the reverse. We are exporting our technology to the rest of the world. Um, and the team here is really proud of um, uh, that achievement. Our technology has just also gone into Chile in, in beta version, and uh, we're just testing the site at the moment. And once we feel the, the site is up to scratch, that will go live as well. Are there plans to bring it into Brazil? Um, so our, 
our philosophy around minority ownership versus majority ownership is um, slightly different. We absolutely give a lot of benefit to all our partners. Um, our majority partners have access to the full stack technology that we have. The minority partners, however, have um, access to the services. Um, so we'll give them access, for example, to our search as a service, image serving as a service, um, fraud detection as a service, etc., rather than having to build their entire full stack from end to end and they can do their own customization on on top of that and that's the model we've used in Brazil so they use our our search engine for example although uh, that would give them an incentive to ha- perhaps invite you to move to full ownership at some stage um, yeah you, you would hope that these these um, these negotiations are always hard and complex um, but it, we it, my job is to provide um, one more incentive for them to do that so the partnership pattern that you have in these various countries how does that work you go you go in there with somebody in the industry or how how is it shaped um so we followed diff um, slightly different models in different countries um in South Korea in Brazil, it's a similar model where we've gone with large um, incumbents. So the, our Brazilian business is part-owned by the, one of the largest banks of South America called Santander. And so we've gone in partnership with this large bank um, who have a lot of presence throughout Latin America, especially in Brazil. And in South Korea, we've gone with the SK Group, uh, which is, um, if, I'm, if my stats are correct, the fourth largest group of South Korea. And again, if my stats are correct, the revenue that that group makes is larger than the GDP of New Zealand. Uh, not that that means a lot, <laughs> but um, but the point being that they're two large incumbents that we've partnered with, and and that allows us um, to uh, to bring our technology and bring our ex- IP and expertise alongside their local presence uh, to to create um, a partnership that really makes one plus one equals to three. Santander is, of course, an international bank. Yeah. So you could perhaps foresee partnerships in other areas as you grow. Um, again, these partnerships can be very complex. The the bigger the entities, the the bigger the complexities. But but we never say no to anything. And and our um, our aim is absolutely to maximise the value to shareholders. And we see a lot of value in our relationship with Santander. Why why were you particularly attracted to emerging markets rather than established markets? Um, so emerging markets is where the growth is a lot higher. Um, so our, uh, we we have a balance. Uh, we are a very balanced stock where we provide great dividends, and you know our, the dividend story on car sales has always been great. Our dividend payout ratio is in excess of eighty percent. Sometimes um, we've even paid on record more dividend than that. But our story doesn't end at just dividends. We are a cap a growth stock as well. And for us to maintain that that growth stock, we need to be in in high growth countries rather than countries that are already established. And we're all we're doing is squeezing the lemon a little bit more. Um, and the value to shareholders is a lot less because though these companies are well established in first world markets, and we would have to pay a thirty percent premium to to take over the organisation, and the value to shareholders could be could be quite negative in the long term. And I would imagine in established markets, the competition would be a lot more intense, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. But we never say no to anything. And you know, opportunistically, if there is a good deal to be done, we'll never say no. 
but our strategy has been emerging markets and and large emerging markets. Your your traffic is obviously dependent on the health of the economy. So how do you read that at the moment? Are you sort of fairly level in these areas, or where the growth? Where's the growth? From an Australian perspective, we're we're doing okay. Um, and I guess you know it's all all on record how we're going. And we just had an annual general meeting, so so that talked to our performance. Um, in terms of international, these are high growth markets. Um, um, you know, Brazil is going through a tough period at the moment. But having said that, we're still ple- um, pleased that we keep growing in even even in tough markets. Uh, um, and we, you know, when these markets turn, the growth will be enormous, and it's about staying for the long term in in many of these markets um, and many of these other countries, Mexico and Chile also provide us with the long-term growth prospects, including South Korea. So carsales.com is pretty resilient. We do pride ourselves on the fact that we have diversified as a business a lot. And international is definitely one part of the story of diversification. But if if anyone followed our stock, say, um, from five years or 10 years ago to now, we publish a pie chart of our revenue segments. Um, and you will see that our revenue segment used to be very one-dimensional, say, 10 years ago or even five or six or seven years ago. And our revenue um, seg- segments have diversified significantly. Um, and we hope that international will continue that trend. We've gone into adjacency, so we have an inspection business where we inspect cars now um, uh, and something that NRMA or RSCV or RSCQ traditionally did now car sales does that and and they are the left field ideas that car sales is exploring as part of the whole supply chain and uh, these these left field ideas are actually happening in Australia they're happening in Australia, but they are easily scalable throughout the world as well. So the same things, we, uh, the same models will work in other parts of the world as well. I mean, that, that's quite exciting. Now, uh, so, so what are the plans for the future for car sales? Um, look, the, for, for us, it's, it's a matter of, one, continuing to run our domestic business really, really well um, and um, expanding into these number of adjacencies that, that um, we talked about. There's finance, there's inspections, um, there's many, many other adjacencies that we're yet to explore, and you'll see those announcements soon. But on top of that, international is, is the really big growth story long term for us as well. Big things are then expected. That's fantastic. AJ, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Thanks very much, AJ. So there you go. Car sales came out of basically nowhere, what, about 10 years ago? And it's been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's a tremendous. It's a tremendous story. And it's really interesting, their strategy. And he's explained it really here in a lot of detail. And I think it's, it's a great interview and should be listened to by a lot of people because it, it really gives you an understanding of how a company develops its strategy. So now to Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, we're 10 weeks out from budget night. What are the challenges ahead for Scott Morrison? I think the fiscal challenges for Mr. Morrison are bringing the budget back into surplus, cutting deficits, uh, cutting the growth in debt that we are seeing, and uh, uh, basically convincing the rating agencies that he actually has a plan to bring the uh, the, the, the the budget into uh, um, under some sort of control and to to stop all this incredible borrowing and spending that we've been seeing. And that's just the fiscal challenge. I mean, I think the 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 other challenge, of course, is who will be the prime minister in. 
10 weeks time, I mean, that's certainly distracting from the whole budget process, which uh, um, is also not helping Mr. Morrison, I'm sure. No, not at all. Not at all. But uh, leaving aside the question of who will be prime minister for a moment, the issue is that they're not actually cutting back on spending, are they? No, no, they aren't. And, and as a matter of fact, a, a lot of sort of spending is coming online um, as the NDIS, for example, uh, uh, cranks up, um, as the losses for the uh, broadband network start becoming realised. Um, so it's actually very hard for the government to actually uh, claim that they are, are cutting spending. And, and also some of these, these, these spending cuts that count as having passed the parliament and haven't passed the parliament, and they at some point have to be reversed in the budget as well. So there, there's just a lot of almost you could almost say automatic features that are driving the, the, the budget deficit at the moment, in addition to the fact that there, there's a lack of fiscal discipline. Which spending cuts did they flag that uh, aren't real? Some of those from the 2014 budget, um, I think around university education. They, they, they get counted as if they've passed in subsequent budgets, even though they haven't. Um, so those sorts of things that uh, uh, Mr. Hockey tried to put through in 2014 and 15, um, they're actually called zombie measures, I think, term that they use. Those sorts of things have, have now more, more or less got to be reversed. Um, now, on the one hand, of course, there is a story to say we should actually reopen past budgets and correct them. Um, on the other hand, there's also a story for saying, well, we shouldn't ever, ever have encountered them in the first place until they were actually passed by the parliament. Well, the other vexed question is what happens to tax reform? The government has their uh, tax reform package now in the Senate. Uh, it looks to be dead in the water. Yeah, look, How's it going to get through? I, I'd be very, very surprised if that actually got through. Um, there, there, there are a few things to sort of be thinking about here. The, the very first instance, of course, is that tax reform is always going to be difficult when the budget is in deficit. So, I mean, our, my, my advice to politicians always is is make sure that you've got a coherent story around spending being under control before you start talking about tax re uh, reform. Because people start, the first question people ask, of course, is where's the money coming from? Now, if you can say we are going to be building up a surplus, we've got spending under control, and therefore tax reform won't actually hit the bottom line as hard as it looks like it will hit, that's a plausible story. I don't think Mr. Morrison has, has made that case yet. He's got a good story around the Australian company tax rate is high high by international standards. The difficulty that he faces there is that most Australian investors don't care about the Australian company tax rate because we have this dividend imputation system, which more or less is um, dividends from company uh, revenue are taxed at our marginal tax rate. So if you're an Australian tax resident, you don't care about the company tax rate. It's foreigners who care. So any cut in the company tax rate immediately benefits foreigners. By bringing in tax cuts at a time before the budget gets into surplus, it's, uh, it means we won't actually see any real effect on our living standards, will we? Very likely, yes. And it, it, it also means that the, 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 the benefits flowing through to Australians are going to be longer term benefits. So it's very hard for a treasurer to be selling what is almost certainly a short term uh, pain for a long term gain. I mean, I, I think it is a good policy, but I don't think they're explaining it very well. And I don't think now is the time to be doing it. Um, Mr. Costello, the, 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 the former Liberal treasurer in the Howard government, actually has 
had a good argument to make that if you were going to look at tax reform, you would be cutting personal taxes first because that's going to hit Australians in the hip pocket rather than company taxes, which are going to only affect Australians in the longer term through growth in wages and lower prices and those sorts of things. But those are long term benefits which won't be realised by ordinary Australians very quickly. Which makes it much harder to sell as a, as a package. It makes it much, much harder to sell as a package. And of course, when we've got debt and deficit going the wrong way, it almost looks irresponsible. Uh, is there any prospect of the government actually looking to raise taxes on, on issues like resources and stuff like that? I mean, that, that, that's been flagged. It, it, it has been flagged. I, I certainly don't think that the current government would be making those sorts of arguments. I would have thought that perhaps the uh, um, the opposition might push those sorts of arguments. The the Greens may push those, those sorts of arguments. I think that the, um, the idea of taxes on resources, certainly non-renewable resources, comes very naturally to the green perspective for, from, from where they come into politics. So I would have thought that they would be pushing those arguments. I think where the opposition is, is pushing tax increases are around things such as a capital gains tax and also removal of negative gearing. Now, the, the arguments that they make there are, are seemingly plausible, but I'm not entirely convinced. But the, the biggest problem that they face in that particular area is the capital gains tax doesn't raise very much money anyway. But, but the issue surely is that uh, with housing affordability as a dominant issue out there in the electorate, capital gains tax reform and negative gearing reform is a much more sellable proposition. Yes, it, it is a sellable proposition, but in, in many respects, I view those sorts of things as being symbolic, sort of form above substance kind of things. Um, the And, and they, they sort of try to come at the problem from the demand side of the economy. Now, in order to have a price differential, to, to make an argument that there is something driving up housing prices in Australia, you have to have demand and supply conditions. And it's the supply conditions that I actually think are really driving the prices and, of course, the low interest rates that we currently have in Australia as well. So, you know, changing the the, the capital gains tax and changing the, the instances around negative gearing are going to distort the economy in ways I um, that we probably don't realise. And I also don't think it's going to work very much. Looking forward, though, I mean, we're still a long way from getting into surplus, aren't we? Yes. I think even by the, the, the government's own optimistic standards, uh, we would be looking at surplus in four or five years' time. That's if nothing else goes wrong between now and then. That's assuming everything remains steady. Yes, and the economy works along the projection of their forecasts. So not only are there no changes in, in policy settings, but also that their forecasting out to 2022 is about right. If those, if those two conditions are both met at the moment, the budget will tip into surplus in that year. So 2020-21? Yes. That's uh, almost two election cycles away. That, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Which of course says to us that um, the, 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 the policy setting are not going to uh, remain unchanged. And of course, the Treasury's forecasting ability has been shown to be quite inadequate. To be fair to them, forecasting is difficult, especially the future. Um, and we've, we've known that for a long time as well. So it's, 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 I, I'm not optimistic that uh, the, the budget will be coming into surplus anytime soon or even by then. Even by then? Even by then. I, I'd be very doubtful. There is a lack of discipline. The government and the opposition are both planning on growing themselves into surplus. Whereas I actually take the view you must plan to be in surplus you can't just arrive there by accident you must plan and you must work hard to be in surplus and i don't see them planning and i don't see them working hard planning means you actually have to look at your spending yes you've actually got to cut spending we we've got a spending problem 
Um, as it is, our revenue is already at the long-term average between 1970 and, and 2008, the, the, the last Costello budget. If you average uh, revenue to GDP over that period, our revenue is back at that level. Our spending is well above the long-term average. And our debt keeps getting larger and larger. Our debt keeps getting larger and larger. Just 10 years ago, we had a positive net debt position. Now we have a gross debt of about $500 billion. And that's growing. And it's growing. It, it keeps going up. Um, and the, the rate of growth is increasing too. It's, it's not like we're plateauing out like many other OECD countries. We are actually growing our debt at a much higher rate. And of course, there's a whole lot of off-balance, off, not off-balance sheet, but off-budget items that are actually should really be accounted for um, that, that, that's also going to be adding to our debt and deficit over time. Such as what? Well, the NBN, for example, NBN, yes. yes, and, and the, the, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, I, I don't think people quite realized how expensive that was going to be when we all agreed and we all thought it was a good idea. So what's your forecast for this budget? It's going to be fun to watch uh, the, 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 the circus that happens in Canberra because we're going to be seeing all sorts of excuse making and arguments and toing and froing and lots of heat, very little light. And what's going to temper certainly my enjoyment of watching this particular circus is thinking, well, this is actually our money um, that these people are talking about. So, so th that's going to be very sobering. But uh, certainly, I think if you enjoy watching politics, it's always an enjoyable time of the year. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So how do you read that? It's going to be very, very interesting. Look, I don't know how they're going to do it. As Sinclair says, it could take many years till we get back into surplus, well beyond 2020-21. Uh, well, at one point he was talking about 2050. Look, it's going to take a long time. When you think about it, it's all a bit daunting. I mean, you've got fiscal uncertainty in America, you've got fiscal uncertainty in Britain, and lo and behold, apart from New Zealand, it's pretty bad down the Pacific. That's right. New Zealand's a rock star. Okay, Leon, now the news. Well, Gary, in his first speech to a joint session of Congress, President Donald Trump called for a new era of unity and touched on all of his key issues, including jobs, tax, terrorism, trade, border security, immigration, childcare and infrastructure. The president pledged to provide massive tax relief for the middle class and called on Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare with reforms that he said would expand choice and increase access, lower costs, and at the same time provide better health care. However, he did not spell out any specifics, instead mapping out a broad outline of what his changes would look like. Mr. Trump said reforms should lower the cost of health care and ensure people with pre-existing conditions have access to coverage. He proposed tax credits and expanded health savings accounts, allowing people to purchase health insurance. He also foreshadowed legal reforms to protect patients and doctors from unnecessary costs driving up the price of insurance. However, he was short on specifics and did not address the divisions in the GOP about Obamacare. He pledged historic reform to reduce the corporate tax rate to make the US companies more globally competitive and he promised massive tax relief for the middle class, but he gave no details on the tax reforms and said nothing about a border adjustment tax as part of a Republican proposal in the House of Reps. Now, the president is expected to outline his tax policy proposals following the unveiling of plans to repeal and replace Obamacare. He said he will ask Congress to approve legislation for a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure. That would be financed through both public and private channels, but did not. But again, he didn't provide too many details. The guiding principles, he said, would be buy American and hire American. 
nor did he talk about how his programs would be paid for and how his policies would affect the $4 trillion federal budget without blowing out the deficit. Uh, But he made some strong promises, and his calm delivery won applause from political pundits. Still, analysts were disappointed. He didn't provide the policy details the markets was expected. Ray Attrell, the global head of of Forex and Fixed Income Strategy at National Australia Bank in Sydney, said the entire speech had just two paragraphs on taxes with 12 references in total. And some analysts said Americans might have to wait some time before they get into tax because they're aiming, planning to release a more detailed tax reform plan by May. But given the difficulties with crafting a plan that stands a chance of passing in both the House and Senate, we wouldn't be surprised if that timeline is subject to further delays. And that means comprehensive tax reform is likely to take another 12 months, if not longer. Still, futures for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and other major indexes were modestly higher in response to the promise of tax cuts, Obamacare repeal and $1 trillion in infrastructure spending. And some analysts said the markets would give the president time to detail how it would pay for the changes, but they warned he might test the market's patience. And they're saying it's just a matter of time and how long investors are willing to accept the uncertainty. I think we also should never forget that Trump made his fame and fortune as a TV star and he understands the power of ratings. And when you think about it, it's his rating built by smoke and mirrors and promises he probably can't keep that give him the political power he's got in, in the middle classes. They, they don't, don't think. Look, the political pundits are cheering and I'd say Trump gave an impersonation of, an, of a competent president. But uh, let's just wait to see what happens when he tweets again. That's true. He st- remains unpredictable. Gary, uh, Australia's live cattle exports to Indonesia will increase with Indonesia moving from four-month to one-year import permits and increasing the weight permit from 350 kilogram to a maximum 450 kilogram. And the changes coincide with Indonesian President Joko Widodo arriving in Sydney over the weekend for talks with the Australian government to lay out the framework for a future trade deal. As part of the talks, Indonesia has agreed to lower tariffs on Australian sugar to 5%. And for its part, Australia will scrap tariffs on pesticides and herbicides coming from Indonesian suppliers. It's all good. And also, the uh, defence cooperation that Turnbull and Joko uh, talked about. Look, I think I think it's good because Indonesia is not a big trading partner, and it's got and it's a, a huge economy, and uh, it's got a huge population, 160 million, and uh, Islamic mostly. To do a deal with them on defence isn't a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all, and it could actually really boost. Uh, trade as well. Exactly. Now, the Australian Labor Party has introduced legislation to stymie the Fair Work Commission's plan to cut penalty rates. Uh, Flagging a work choices style campaign, Labor leader Bill Shorten wrote to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull warning him Labor will introduce legislation on Monday to protect penalty rates. And the legislation seeking to stop the Commission's draft decision from coming into force will also seek to ensure that penal rates could not be cut in the future if it means a cut in take-home pay. Now, that bill is likely to fail given the government holds a one-seat majority in the lower house. But Labor said it will be putting pressure on crossbenchers and government MPs to support the legislation. The powerful CFMEU has threatened a massive work choices style campaign and the government is now turning to the Business Council of Australia for support. So it's a real worry. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, CFMEU is raising costs in the construction industry at a time when we could do with a drop in costs. It actually signals the government's going to have a lot of difficulty with this penalty rate regime. It's going to be politically difficult for them. Consumer confidence has rebounded sharply after hitting lows in February. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has consumer confidence rising 4.7% and significantly the increase was across all five sub-indices and was driven by improved sentiment towards the outlook for household finances. Household views of current finances rose a sharp 9.3% in the week ending 26th of February 
and that more than reversed last week's 7.5% fall. At the same time, sentiment towards future finances also rose a solid 6.3%, bringing the index to its highest value since March 2016. Households' views around economic conditions also improved, with sentiment towards a 12-month outlook bouncing 4.4%, while sentiment towards a longer-term outlook rose a more modest 1.7%. So that's good. And the other really great part is about our GDP. The Australian economy has bounced back. It grew 1.7%. 1% in the December quarter, wiping any predictions of a recession out. It's a big turnaround from the September quarter when the economy fell 0.5%. And the strong figures put Australia's annual economic growth back to a respectable 2.4%. Now, that number is still below average. It's well above economists' forecasts, which had the quarterly growth figure at 0.8% and the annual figure at 2%. Yeah, it's pretty good news, and let's hope it keeps up. At the same time, surging commodity prices have seen Australia's current account deficit narrowing sharply to 3.9 billion in the December quarter. That was down from a deficit of 10.2 billion in the previous quarter, and is Australia's smallest current account deficit since 2001. Exports rose 12%, or by 9.67 billion in the quarter. Imports edged up by a more modest 2%, or 1.46 billion. Soaring commodity prices was a big driver of the change. Resource exports rose 2.1%. Rural exports were up 8.3%. Service volumes are also continue to edge up higher, up a more modest 0.6% for the quarter. And Australian manufacturing has surged, growing five months in a row, reaching its highest level in nearly 15 years. The Australian Industry Group Australian Performance Manufacturing Index soared by 8.1 points in February to a strong 59.3 points, well above the 50-point level separating expansion from contraction. And that's the strongest result since May 2002, Gary. Yeah, pretty good. But uh, there are problems because you've got rising a Electricity costs, uh, that's yeah. that's an issue. And energy is a big issue in industry. Business profits has soared in the last quarter, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. ABS figures show profits rose 20.1% in the last three months of 2016 in seasonally adjusted term. That's the biggest percentage rise since March 2001. Gross profits were up 26.2% in the same quarter the year before. At the same time, however, wages and salaries fell 0.5% in the December quarter on seasonally adjusted basis. In the previous quarter, profits rose only by 1%. Now, these profit increases were driven largely by rises in commodity exports and mining industry profits surged by 21%, dwarfing increases in other industries. The only industry to come close to mining was construction, where gross operating profits rose 5.3% for the quarter, with a seasonally adjusted estimate of 32%. And, of course, mining doesn't employ very many people. More robots than people these days. Now, the National Australia Bank has recruited... Former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, appointing him Chief Custom Officer for Corporate Institutional Banking. The NAB wasted no time approaching him with a job. Now, this appointment comes only a few weeks after Mr Baird announced his retirement from politics to spend time with his family and help his parents and sister through what he calls serious health challenges. And the job takes Mr Baird back to where he started. He started with the NAB in 1989. He's been 17 years working in the corporate and institutional banking in Australia and overseas, putting in time with the NAB, Deutsche Bank and HSBC. Now, I'm just um, wondering how long it'll be till we get rules coming in uh, stopping people going to their ATMs at 1am. <laughs> now, now, rebel shareholder Jan Cameron has emerged as a victory after a bloody battle for boardroom control of organic baby formula maker Bellamy's Australia. Although Miss Cameron failed to secure a board seat from the extraordinary general meeting in Melbourne on Tuesday, her ally Chan Wei Chan and a longtime lawyer Rod Peters were voted onto the board. And a dramatic day began with Chairman Rob Woolley stepping down, leaving the company, leaving the other four directors, Laura Inman, Charles Stitch, uh, Charles Sitch, 
Michael Wadley and Patria Mann to face angry shareholders on their own. Ms. Inman, who's on three other boards, also resigned ahead of the meeting. Uh, Ms. Mann retained her seat, but Mr. Sitch and Mr. Wadley were both removed. Mr. Woolley departed after failing to reach agreement in recent days with two hedge funds looking to broker a last-minute deal with the warring parties. Mr. Woolley, along with former Chief Executive Laura McBain, took Bellamy's from a small family-run operation to a listed business valued at $1.4 million, $1.4 billion as 2016 peak before it crashed to just $450 million. Now, the profit season is drawing to a close and the last of the company reports are coming in. QBE Insurance Group reported a 23% rise in net profit for the year ended December 31 to $844 million US. Property giant Lend-Lease's profit after tax for the six month it rose 11.6% to $394.8 million. Slater and Gordon's after tax loss for the half year narrowed to $425.1 million. That's down from $958.3 million a year ago, but they're in serious trouble. Mining service company McMahon posted a loss of $23.3 million for the December half from a profit of $3.3 million for the previous year. Harvey Norman posted a 39% increase in net profit to $257.3 million in December half. Cash Converters reported a 27.9% drop in net profit for the six-month end of December 31st to $11.45 million. Gold Miner Resolute Mining posted a 39% fall in after-tax profit for the December half to $55.5 4 million. Mine equipment rental Group Emico Holdings net loss for the December half narrowed to 31.3 million. That's down from 107.2 million a year ago. Online sports retailer Surf Stitch narrowed its December half loss to 8.3 million from 14.5 million a year ago. Spotless Group Winders net loss to December 31st to 35.358.1 million from 48 million a year ago due to a non-cash impairment and restructuring charge. Clothing retailer Specialty Fashions net profit in the December half bounced 37% to 121 million. And satellite communications provider Speedcast International's full year profit fell 37% to 55.9 million. Now, all up, I'd say the profit reporting season's been pretty good. And of course, at the end of the profit reporting season, you always have companies with losses reporting. Now, and that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we've got a terrific uh, chat with David Thomas Roberts uh, from the US, talking about all about becoming an entrepreneur and how to work for yourself. And he's a specialist in that area and he's written a book about it. And look forward to talking to him. And if, if you want to follow us on uh, Twitter, you go to Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.